NFL is starting to reach critical mass. Games are being affected. These more happening. Take a look at why the officiating has got it so screwed Brandon Staley gets the gate in Los Angeles after the Chargers give up 63 points to the Raiders. The Raiders were crying out loud. Look at what coaches might get in LA. I'm your man, KJ Green, welcoming you back to the Hoodwood. And let's just start off from the top by looking at the numbers for Shohei Otani, the most coveted free agent in this year's class, finally decided that he was going to stay on the West Coast, not turn to the Angels, but go 30 miles up I-5 to Chavez Ravine, where the boys in blue wait with cash flowing arms. Shohei Otani, the multi-talented slugger and soon to be returning to being a pitcher, signed a 10-year, $700 million contract for to play for the LA Dodgers. This is by far the richest contract in Major League Baseball, if not sports, history. Um, nearly three quarters of a billion dollars for one player. But... There are some financial chicanery. I wouldn't say chicanery. Gymnastics would be better, better suited. The Dodgers, and this is something that Otani has uh, constructed and offered him and his agent. The Dodgers are going to pay Otani $2 million a year for the next 10 years. That's a $20 million contract. You're thinking, where are you getting $700 million? All that money which would be $680 million is going to be back-ended or back-loaded on the tail end of the contract. So Otani, which he'll probably be 35, 36, I believe, when, he, uh, when that contract is up, will start to get paid a paltry, I mean, $2 million per year for the first 10 years of the contract, and then they start backloading it. 30 some odd million dollars a year. And it's like one of those things that you're looking at going, is this real? Is this, the kind of money that they're throwing at Otani was not unexpected. Most people thought that Otani was going to 
be the first player that was going to make uh, half a billion dollars. Many people were thinking $500 million was going to be the starting price for Otani. You figure he was going to make a lot more money than his former, now former teammate Mike Trout, who got about $400 million. But Otani, the way this is structured, they're deferring a lot of this money. $680 million interest-free in the 10 years that follow the expiration of the deal. So he gets some of the money up front, $2 million a year, which is, like I said, a bargain if you really want to consider it. But then at the end of the contract, that's when the deferred money will start to be paid out. The Dodgers save money against the luxury tax up front. But you start in 2035 when that money starts getting paid you thought bobby bonilla day was crazy every july 1st bobby bonilla is getting a million dollars which by the way if you look at the sports from the hoodwood facebook page shameless plug you would see that i posted that when bobby bonilla days end show you tiny days begin and for the next 20 years Shohei Otani will get a 34 34 million dollar check annually from the Dodgers. Now, people say, well, why did Otani do this? I mean, it was to save Dodgers money. Otani has so much money tied up in endorsement deals around the world. He doesn't need the money that he's going to be getting from the Dodgers. That being said, he is still going to be one of the highest paid players in Major League Baseball. But not now. The Dodgers will be paying, Otani will be on the Dodgers' books long after his, he's retired and his number's been retired up in the, in the, uh, in the annals of Dodger Stadium. Otani will get paid, and he's worth it. He's, I must say worth it. He has won MVPs, he's won Cy Youngs, he has power, and once his elbow surgery finally heals, he'll still go back to being a two-way player, DH, and pitcher. With the signing of Tyler Glass, Glass now from the, the Rays, you're looking at the Dodgers with a one-two punch of pitching that will sustain them through the rest of the decade. The Dodgers are starting to become the NL version of the Yankees, even though they only have one World Series to show for it. Never mind the fact that everyone knew that Otani was going to go to one of the big-name clubs, the Dodgers. The Yankees were stalking, a stalking horse for a while. Then when they got Juan Soto, they were like, you know what? We're good. We, we, we don't need, that. We don't need that, that kind of drama, which is kind of funny. The other New York team, the Mets, kind of was, was hinting at it. The Blue Jays looked like they were had, the outside, had an outside chance. And, of course, the chance of him staying with the Angels because they were trying, please stay with us, please. And Otani was like, I'm going to stay in L.A., but I'm going from Angel Red to Dodger Blue. It's an interesting proposition that Otani has made, and the Dodgers, already a 100-win team, look like they will still be one of the top teams in the division, if not the NL, if not Major League Baseball. Remember, they have Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Clayton Kershaw. Now they have Tyler Glass now. They have a Cornucopia of 
great players lined up ready to win. But can they make that, that, that final push and start minting out World Series? Shohei Otani has said he wants to win and wants to win now. The Dodgers are in that prime position to do that. Now it's just a matter of if Dave Roberts can make it happen. I was taking a look at the LA Lakers Wikipedia page and they did put on their Wikipedia page that they were the NBA tournament champions, NBA in-season tournament, which maybe it was at the NBA Cup, NBA, it, it is, it's really just awkward. The NBA Cup concluded last Saturday with the Lakers defeating the Indiana Pacers 123-109 to win the inaugural in-season tournament, LeBron James being named Most Valuable Player. That was no surprise to anyone, this scribe included. I said last week the fix was in that the Lakers were bound to win this tournament. I figured a big-name team was bound to win it, whether it be the Lakers or the Celtics. You had already eliminated the, the NBA champion uh, Nuggets. You had already um, kept strong teams like the Bucks, the Timberwolves out of it. So it was pretty much a primrose path to celebrate the Lakers. Now, do you hang a banner for that? The Lakers said they're going to hang a banner for it, which I think is stupid. They got a trophy, $500,000 for each player, which they looked like they were very happy to get an extra check. But what's the meaning of it? Okay, you won the in-season tournament. What incentive... Is it going to be going forward for other teams to give a shit about the, this NBA tournament or NBA Cup or Stern Cup or whatever you're going to call it? The way the tournament was set up was intriguing. You know, with the you know the, your in in uh, in division games, which count toward the regular season, but are counting toward this qualifying for this turn the quarterfinals and there were some hard feelings there were you know with the, the Bulls and the Celtics uh people think of the Celtics were trying to run off the score to get into the playoff into the uh quarterfinals I keep wanting to say playoffs but it wasn't playoffs it was a, a knockout style one game single elimination tournament leading up to this finals the Pacers got on a fairly hot roll and rolled into the into the finals where they got destroyed by the Lakers, to no one's surprise. But I, what I thought was funny that the team with the NBA's best record at the time, Minnesota Timberwolves, didn't even qualify for the tournament. The Lakers were 11-9. and nine. They won their games at the right time. And I thought the way the whole thing was set up was kind of shady, shady-shifty. The cup that they won was cool. It's one of those, okay, another one for the trophy case. But the way the whole setup just seemed contrived. Yes, it was a tournament that was made up, designed by Adam Silver, who had long seen the soccer-style tournaments that are being played in Europe, like the Champions League and everything like that. But you don't have a real incentive to win a tournament that's being played in November and early December. No one cares. Are you going to need to make this tournament where the winner gets an automatic berth to the playoffs? Now would be really interesting. A team gets really hot early in the season and then tanks the rest of the season to get in the playoffs. 
and but they got already got a playoff berth in hand, so who cares? We just kind of rest everybody up until April. Wait me when it was that. Wait me when November ends. But no, wake me up when 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 the regular season's over, so we can get ready for the playoffs. What kind of incentive are we going to have for a team to want to win this NBA in-season tournament, other than this five hundred thousand dollar payday? That someone like LeBron James is like, whatever, I'll split it up with my kids so they can get cars. Or a rookie who's like, oh, wow, this is bigger than any kind of check I'm getting the whole season. The way the structure of the tournament and the way it was set up just seemed really contrived. It made, it did make a lot of sense. I followed it somewhat, but it wasn't something that was going to hold my interest any of the games. The way the courts were set up were kind of funky. The Dallas Mavericks couldn't even play on their court because the material was so bad. The Lakers wanted to wear their black uniforms. They couldn't because in the finals, the floor that was play being played at T-Mobile Arena was too much of a contrast. So were the Pacers. It was a lot of bugs that needed to be worked out. Will it become something that's ingrained in the culture and lexicon of the... of? the NBA and the sport, who knows? But they wanted to see to have what a tournament would look like in season, now you know. And I don't think, and the players said they liked it. The fans were kind of lukewarm about it, but it was interesting to look. It was a nice pattern of Tuesdays and Fridays, an interesting setup. If they're gonna go for this, they say they're gonna do it next year, and we'll see how much tweaking they do between now and then. Let's take our first time out. Come back with an officiating crisis in the NFL. People are saying that, that the refs are messing up and missing calls. And Brandon Staley gets the gate after the debacle in Vegas. Sports from the Hoopwood comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason. You need us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. You are back in the hoodwood. My name is KJ Green, and Snuffy likes to bark at refs. He never likes their calls, and I keep trying to tell him that the referees have a very hard job. I have friends and acquaintances who are referees, both basketball, soccer, football, umpires, and baseball. It's a hard job. It's a job I would not want to have, and 
I have been very hard on umpires and referees in my playing days, especially when I was in softball. I like to argue with umpires all the time. Most of the time, they deserve the criticism. But the NFL is having a con uh, confidence of uh, try it again. The NFL is having a crisis of confidence when it comes to their refs. Now, most notably in the Bills Chiefs game last Sunday. A critical touchdown was wiped off the board after an offsides call from Kadarius Tony basically wiped out what should have been the go-ahead touchdown. And Patrick Mahomes was vociferously uh, objecting to the calls made by uh, Carl Sheffers, who was the uh, head referee in the game. The problem is that it's not just that call. It wasn't just that play. NFL referees, like I said, have a hard job. There are eight of them on the field. And all of them have different different jobs and different things that they have to regulate. But there are some times where they make calls that you have to wonder, what are you looking at? I'll give you another example, but this time it, involved, it again involves the Chiefs, but it involved them being a benefactor. There was a defensive pass interference call that was made in the Chiefs-Vikings game in October. One of the receivers thought he was interfered with, took his helmet off, and yelled at the referee. The referee did throw the flag, but it took a little while for everything to get straightened out. When you looked at the play, it wasn't pass interference. It should have been called. The Chiefs player should have been flagged for throwing his helmet, but he was not. Um, Cleveland Browns defensive end Miles Garrett complaining about lack of calls in a win. The Browns beating the Jaguars last last Sunday. He complains he is constantly being held. T.J. Watt of the Steelers maintains constantly that he's being held and that the referees just shrug it and say whatever. Calls that have been made by the referees are actually down from a high of 8.1 uh, in 2019. It said 7.2 this season. It was 6.6 .6 last year, uh, decline, number of declined penalties. They say they're trying to get better, but I don't see any kind of consistency. They say there's a rule book and that the referees are just be, are doing what they're told to call what they're supposed to call. Offensive linemen hold on every play. That goes without saying. But if they hold inside the numbers, that's one thing. Once they get outside the numbers or at the shoulders, that's when they start getting calls. There is, I think, there's pass interference on every play. But it's a, as a matter of going for the ball, going through the, the, the receiver, there's offensive pass interference, I think, every play, almost every play. But there's so much leverage that needs to be done. There's so much leverage that needs to be gained, pushing, shoving. And the referees have to look at every play. The different position referees have to look at certain things. They have to watch for certain things. And it's judgment calls on every penalty. Except stuff that's blatantly obvious. There's some things that you wonder, are you really calling this? Is this something that needs to be called? I wouldn't have a referee's job. It's too problem problematic, if you should you should say, because 
there's so much judgment. And then you also have to figure in the gambling uh, factor. How much does gambling, which is highly prevalent, I give odds on every game for, for entertainment comparison purposes only, I might, I might add. But there are odds on every game. You don't think that the referees might be influenced by this? You don't think that Las Vegas is getting a cut of this? That the mafiosos that still run the casinos aren't getting a bit of the action? I'm waiting for a critical call to go down in a Super Bowl. Now, last year, there was a questionable holding call in the Eagles-Chiefs Super Bowl, which led directly to the Chiefs scoring the winning touchdown. It was eh, a borderline call. But I'm waiting for something to happen like happened in the uh, NFC Championship game a few years ago with the Rams and the Saints, where there was a blatant, blatant pass interference call that was not called. And the referees did not throw the flag. And it's a, way, it's, a, it's a question of when do the referees throw the flag? Should they throw the flag? What are they throwing the flags for? Is it a crisis of confidence in the NFL with the, with the players and the refs? The players and the refs are always going to butt heads. But the referees have the power. And the ref players can do nothing but simply complain. That's just the way it is. I looked up the definition of debacle. According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, it is defined as a complete failure, especially because of bad planning or organization. And I've also seen of a definition called for debacle a great disaster or a complete failure, fiasco. What happened Thursday night in Las Vegas was the clinical classical definition of a debacle. The Raiders after being shut out by the Vikings, score 63 points in a 63-21 annihilation of the Los Angeles Chargers. You were waiting for somebody like Duke from the, the, the Rocky movie when Apollo was getting his head slugged in by Ivan Drago saying, throw the damn towel. That's what you wanted to do. I wanted to throw the towel. I wasn't even watching the game. I saw the score on my phone at the half. It was 42 to nothing. I picked up a towel and threw it. I was like, isn't it a white towel? But I just threw it. The game was an absolute disaster for the Chargers. I looked at the, at the play chart and the play-by-play, -play and it listed. Now, this is the first half. Chargers, punt. Raiders, touchdown. Chargers, fumble. Raiders, touchdown. Chargers, fumble. Raiders, touchdown. Char uh, Chargers, punt. The, 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 the Raiders scored 21 points in the first quarter. In the second quarter, it went touchdown, punt. Touchdown, downs. Touchdown, end of half. The Raiders were up 42 to nothing at the half. Now, the Broncos got 70 hung on them by the Dolphins. This was looking even worse. I was telling a buddy of mine 
on instant messaging, I thought that the Raiders should go for 77. And I think Antonio Pierce pulled the reins back. Because this game could have, the, the, the way the Raiders were marching up and down the field, and the way that the Chargers were just doing nothing, lackluster. Austin Eckler gets a first down and does the first down symbol. When he was when the Chargers were losing 56 to 7. You say little when you win, even less when you lose, according to legendary coach Paul Brown. The Chargers nader of this game, down 49-7, give up a pick six and a fumble return for a touchdown for the Raiders last points. Now, the Chargers kind of cleaned it up a little bit in the fourth quarter when playing against the Raiders scrubbies and scored two touchdowns late. But the 63 points represent the most points that the Raiders ever scored in a game, the most points that the Chargers have ever given up in a game. And Brandon Staley tried to put on a brave face saying there's been other legendary coaches that have given up a lot of points too. John Madden never gave up 50 points in a game he coached ever. Vince Lombardi gave up 56 points in his first year of coaching. Never gave up more than that anymore, anymore in his career. Paul Brown gave up 56 points in his AAFC days. A couple of times in his early Browns uh, legendary uh, days in the 50s. Never as a coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. Those legendary coaches never gave up 63. But Brandon Staley did. And he got the gate as Chargers head coach on Friday afternoon. Also, the GM was fired as well. Does this mean it's going to be a turnover of talent in Los Angeles? The Chargers underachieved this year. They were a playoff team. I think this goes all the way back to that playoff game in Jacksonville when they had a 24-0 lead. Had Duval quiet. And the Jags came back to win that game. I think Brandon Staley should have got fired after that game. The Chargers, 5-9, and nine, repeatedly failing to get out. And what irritates me as a Vikings fan is that the Vikings lost to this team. They shut out the Raiders. But the Raiders turn around after four days after getting shut out, score 63 points. Make it make sense. I I, I don't know. It is mind blown. Brandon Staley's out. Who's going to be in? I'm hearing names like Jim Harbaugh. I'm hearing names like Bill Belichick. Possibly he, he's going to be on the way out in New England as well. But Brandon Staley is out. And I don't think he's going to be finding a job anytime in the near future. I could be wrong. Let's take another timeout. Come back with week 15 NFL picks. We gotta do better. Last week was another disaster, but I'm gonna get better. Sports with Hood rolls on after this. I'm actor Rajim A. Gross. Some of the studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer-generated characters, not only in the movie that we might 
be filming in, but in all future films as well. That's not fair. And I thank the SAG board members that are fighting for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say standing in complete solidarity with everyone. Thank you. You are tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for opinion, analysis, and insight on the world of sports. Here now is the man banned from sports trivia contests in 38 states and four Canadian provinces, and not to mention Guam. Your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood, and let's get to the Week 15 picks. And I, I, I'm at a loss. To be perfectly honest, I'm at a loss why it seems like everything went sideways last week. The way the picks have been going this month, the song A Long December by Counting Crows, for some reason just keeps sticking in my head. And the, yeah, yeah, that's what I, I just, that just keeps playing on repeat in my head. Some of these picks have been downright bizarre. I mean, come on, you didn't see the Patriots beating the Steelers. No, you didn't. Stop it. You didn't see the Bears beating the Lions. You didn't see the the Dolphins losing to the Titans in a brutal fashion. You didn't see Tommy Tommy Cutlets do, slicing up the Packers. No, you didn't. Stop. Don't even try it. You know you didn't. I the, the Eagles have, and Chiefs have picked bad times to go unreliable. The Bengals keep vexing me, and I can't figure out the NFC South, save for the sorry-ass Panthers, to save my life. Now, with the regular season of college football having concluded and just bowl games now, the NFL swoops in to fill the supposed void with games the next three weeks. You're going to have three games this Saturday, two next week, uh, the Saturday before Christmas, and a primetime Saturday nighter on the 30th. That offsets the uh, Monday night game since the Monday night falls on New Year's night, so they push that game back to Saturday. So, get used to the NFL game spread even more across your next three weekends. We are done with bye weeks, and there are 64 games left to pick in this regular season. And still a lot to untangle for the playoffs. No team has yet to clinch playoff berth as of yet, though there are four teams right now in the NFL with 10 wins. On the other end... Teams with 10 losses in the Patriots and the Panthers have been eliminated from playoff contention. So instead of continuing to lament, I'll move forward with the Week 15 picks. I was being provided by ESPN Bet for comparison and entertainment purposes only. If you bet these lines and lose, it's too close to Christmas to go begging for money that you lost. You're just fresh out of luck, partner. As always, consult the fine website at 506sports.com for an extensive coverage map of the games, but do check your local listings for the games being shown in your area. Fox is only going to be showing one 425 game this week, and I'll explain that later. Cowboys-Bills game will be shown nationally, like the Saturday games on NFL Network. 
and the Sunday night game on NBC and the Monday night game on ABC and ESPN. So there's going to be a lot of national games to be seen this week. All games are listed in Eastern Standard Time. Let's get started with games starting on Saturday, December 16th. This is the NFL Network triple header. All games are shown nationally on NFL Network and locally in the uh, respective cities in that, that are in question. Our first game is the 7-6 Vikings taking on the 7-6 Bengals at Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati. 1 p.m. kickoff on NFL Network. The Bengals are three-point favorites. Last week, the Vikings defeated the Raiders 3-0, while the Bengals defeated the Colts 34-14. Fast fact here is Vikings 3-0 win over the Raiders was the lowest scoring indoor game in NFL history. Now, these are two of the most perplexing NFL teams that are leading off the weekend. The Vikings and Neiman offense scored less than they did in losing to the Bears, but somehow got the win. The Bengals were expected to struggle with the Colts, but instead dealt out a stunning route. Both teams are looking for big things from their otherwise unheralded backup. Jake Browning will have a stern test against a defense that has given up a TD in eight quarters, and it's tough to determine how much weaker that the Vikings offense can look. Bengals coach Zach Taylor's inane comment calling out the Paycor Stadium fans will look that much more inane as the Bengals should roll easily and stay on the fringes of the AFC playoff race to my chagrin and finally deep six the Vikings on life support chances to make the postseason. The pick here is Cincinnati. Next on the docket, we have the 7-6 Steelers taking on the 7-6 Colts at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. 4.30 kickoff on NFL Network. The Colts are 1.5-point favorites. Last week, the Steelers lost to the Patriots 21-18, while the Colts lost to the Bengals 34-14. Fast fact here is the Pittsburgh became the first NFL team with a winning record to lose consecutive home games against foes who were 8 games or more under 500. And in this case, teams with 10 losses or more. The infighting and finger-pointing are rampant on both sides of uh, the coin with both the Steelers and the Colts, but the Steelers are not the ones that you expected. But after a pair of stunning losses to otherwise downtrodden squads, the Steelers are slumping at the worst time. And there are shocking calls for Mike Tomlin's job. The Colts are very much in the AFC playoff hunt, and after taking a brutally bad loss to the Bengals, are in the same morass that the Steelers in. Seven and six teams all over the place, elbowing and jockeying for playoff spots. This is a critical game for both teams, and a coin flip game at best. I think that the arrogant Steelers think they can just still just show up, show out, and scare teams, but that time has passed. I think that the Colts and their redoubtable running game, led by Zach Moss, will be able to, to carry the day. And especially with the Steelers have taken losses to the Cardinals and the Pats back-to-back -back at home, I really don't have any trust in the Steelers. The pick here is Indianapolis. Next on the docket, we have the 7-6 Broncos taking on the 9-4 Lions at Ford Field in Detroit. 8-15 kickoff on NFL Network. The Lions are 4.5-point favorites. Last week, the Broncos defeated the Chargers 24-7, while the Lions lost to the Bears 28-13. Fast fact, these two teams hold the longest playoff drought in their respective conferences. The Broncos have not made playoffs since winning the 50th Super Bowl, the Lions haven't made the playoffs since 2017. Saturday concludes with an intriguing interconference matchup. The Broncos were left for dead at the end of September and was generally an afterthought after losing a 19-8 dud to the Chiefs. But a funny thing happened in the mountains. 
The Broncos reeled off six wins in their next seven to quietly push into the playoff hunt. Now, the Lions have been one of the most maddening teams in the NFL. Just when you think they're going to step up as one of the NFC's elite teams, they blow a gasket and lose an otherwise winnable game. Witness last week's debacle in the midway. Now with the national spotlight back on them will be on them and it will be on them for the rest of the season. As after this game, they have a pair of games with the Vikings sandwiched around at another primetime tilt, this time with the Cowboys. The curve's gonna get really steep. On paper, the Lions are clearly the better team. But you can't be sure if they're really ready to make that statement game that they have arrived. Statement game? No. Need it when to quiet the doubters and make the games against the Vikings meaningless? Yes, the pick is Detroit. Let's turn to the Sunday game, shall we? This is a Fox doubleheader weekend. Early games nationally, uh, uh, regionally, and the national game all going to be the 425 game. I will explain some of the details on that as we get to it. First on the Sunday docket, we have the 5-8 and eight Bears. Taking on the 8-5 and five Browns at Brown Stadium in Cleveland. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Browns are three-point favorites. Last week, the Bears defeated the Lions 28-13, while the Browns defeated the Jaguars 31-27. Now, the fast fact is you would think that this being two of the more storied franchises and older franchises in the NFL, that they would have a long history. But this is only their 18th meeting dating back nearly 70 years. Now, the Bears have played capably over the last few weeks and still have a slim, slim chance to make a late dash to the playoffs once thought improbable. They still have an uphill battle facing a rough and ready Brown squad willing to go all in on the seemingly ageless Joe Flacco. Yes, Snuffy, he is still in this league. Now, Justin Fields of the Bears will continue to have to take care of the ball, limit his mistakes, and grind out offensive series. And he'll probably have to watch out for Miles Garrett, who had four and a half sacks on him by himself the last time they were in Cleveland. The Browns need to pick up pick on, I should say, a suspect Bears defense that, is, that has, in their defense, looked sharper and sharper over the last couple of weeks with the arrival of Montez Sweat from Washington. Gives them a real leader. Tough call here. But I think that the Browns will grind out an ugly win at home. The pick is Cleveland. Next on the docket, we have the 6-7 Buccaneers taking on the 6-7 Packers at Lambeau Field in Green Bay. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. Packers are 3.5 point favorites. Last week, the Buccaneers defeated the Falcons 29-25, while the Packers lost to the Giants 24-22. Fast fact is, the Packers have not lost a December home game since 2018. Now, the Bucs rallied to win a tight game in Atlanta. Now, they head to the Frozen Tundra to face a Packers team that continues to lose winnable games and win games that they have no business winning. It's tough to figure out who will show up on either side in this Battle of the Bays. Now, the Bucs... We we'll, might be able to explore, exploit, I should say, a poor pack run defense. And if the weather is bad, they might even lean heavier on the redoubtable running of Rashad White. Jordan Love has not earned my trust. And as a dependable starter, and for the pack offense, they need somebody who's going to be consistent. And for some reason, I think that the Bucks can go into the once formidable Lambeau Field and steal a win. Pick here is Tampa Bay. Next on the docket, we have the 9-4 Texans taking on the 5-8 Titans at Nissan Stadium in Nashville. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Titans are three-point favorites. Last week, the Titans lost to the Jets 30-6, while the Titans defeated the Dolphins 28-27. Fast fact is the Titans are wearing throwback uniforms from the old Houston Oilers. 
a move they prevented the University of Houston from doing earlier this year. I'm sure if this game had been in Houston, the Titans wouldn't have dared break out the old love your blue uniforms from the beloved late 70s era Oilers to play the current Houston Tenant Texans. That said, the hostility between these two squads is readily apparent. The Texans took a nasty pratfall in Gotham against a so-so Jets team that they had no business losing to, much less getting routed by. Meanwhile, the Titans are feeling themselves after pulling a stunning rally off in South Beach to shock the Dolphins. The Texans are needing this win to stay even with the Jags and hold off the hard-charging Colts. Problem. C.J. Stroud may not be cleared for the game due to concussion protocol, and that may be a real problem. I think the Titans might be able to keep this game close, but the Texans should be able to grind out a win using the running game of Devin Singletary. The Titans are fighting our offensive mojo, but I think that the Texans will do just enough to hold them off. They'll slug out a win. The pick here is Houston. Next on the do docket, we have the 5-8 Jets. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Almost 100 degrees for myself. Start from here. Next on the docket, we have the 5-8 Jets taking on the 9-4 Dolphins at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Dolphins are 8.5-point favorites. Last week, the Jets defeated the... the <clears throat> try it again. Last week, the Jets defeated the Texans 30-6, while the Dolphins lost to the Titans 28-27. Fast fact, in blowing a 14-point lead with under three minutes to play last Monday, the Titans became... Uh, try it again. <clears throat> Let's try this all again. Next on the dial... Next on the docket, we have the 5-8 Jets taking on the 9-4 Dolphins at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Dolphins are 8.5-point favorites. Last week, the Jets defeated the Texans 30-6, while the Dolphins lost to the Titans 28-27. The fast fact here is in blowing a 14-point lead with under three minutes to play on Monday night against the Titans, the Dolphins became only the second team in NFL history to do that. Before that, teams leading by 14 or more with three minutes to play were 767 and one. <laughs> Unbelievable. This game features teams coming off of unexpected results. The Jets pulled off a shockingly easy route of the Texans in Gotham, while the Dolphins blew an aforementioned big lead late in a fall from head loss to the otherwise unremarkable Tex. Uh, not Tex. This game features teams coming off of unexpected results. The Jets pulled off a shockingly easy route of the Texans in Gotham, while the Dolphins blew a big lead in a fall-from-ahead loss to the otherwise unremarkable Titans. I don't believe that Zach Wilson can pull off the masquerade of a competent quarterback for very long, and the Dolphins are getting mighty tired of whispers of fraud from pundits. Now, I'm not one of them, but I'm getting real, real impatient with their uneven play. I think they'll show their dominant side that they had in their first meeting on Black Friday. And here is Miami. Let's take a timeout. Come back with the second half of the NFL picks, the rest of the early games, all the late games and primetime games. Sports from Hollywood rolls on after this.
you're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, KJ Green. We're back in the Hoodwood. Let's continue with the NFL Week 15 picks. Next on the docket, we have the 5-8 Giants taking on the 6-7 Saints at Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. 1 o'clock kickoff on Fox. The Saints are six-point favorites. Last week, the Giants defeated the Packers 24-22, while the Saints defeated the Panthers 28-6. Fast fact here is the Giants' 14 takeaways over the past four... Try it again. Fast fact, the Giants' 14... Try it again. Fast fact, the Giants have 14 takeaways over the past four games, with a dozen by the defense and two from special teams punt coverage. Now, the G-Men and their fans have fallen hard for Tommy DeVito. They call him Cutlets. He has sparked a three-game win streak to climb back into the playoff fringes. Don't laugh. Even the Bears are still in the playoff hunt with a 5-8 and eight record. They head to the Big Easy to face an uneven Saints squad who are still in the hunt for the NFC South title, even with a losing record. Now, the G-Men have been winning games with a suddenly robust defense that I've just, I just mentioned that keeps scores relatively low and management for the young Paisan in his running game that is still featuring the redoubtable Saquon Barkley. The Saints really can't get a rhythm going on for their, their offense for their part. The woeful win over the woeful Panthers doesn't count. And for some reason, I think the G-Men have rallied smartly and are winning ugly. Good time to continue for the visitors. The pick here is New York. Next on the docket, we have the 6 and 7 Falcons taking on the 1 and 12 Panthers at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Falcons are three point favorites. Last week, the Falcons lost to the Buccaneers 29 to 25, while the Panthers lost to the Saints 28 to 6. Fast fact here is Bijan Robinson's 1,110 yards from scrimmage makes the Falcons the first team in NFL history with rookies gaining over 1,000 yards from scrimmage in three consecutive seasons, Kyle Pitts in 21 and Tyler Algier in 22 being the previous. Now, the Falcons play decent on offense, Desmond Ritter throwing for a career-best 347 yards, but their defense came unglued late in a tough home loss to the Bucks. They had Carolina to face a Panthers team that, other than their running game, have no real direction. Now, the Falcons need to win this game to stay abreast in the weak NFC South, and I doubt that they would brook taking any chances in letting a very winnable game slip by. The pick here is Atlanta. Next on the docket, we have the 8-5 Chiefs taking on the 3-10 Patriots at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Mass. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. Now, this game was flexed for mon from Monday night for the Eagles-Seahawks game. The Chiefs are 7.5-point favorites. Last week, the Chiefs lost to the Bills 20-17, while the Patriots defeated the Steelers 21-18. Fast fact here is the Pats' defense has only allowed four touchdowns in the past four games. Filing this under the I never thought I'd ever see this category, the Chiefs and Pats flexed out of a primetime date. How far the mighty have fallen. The game will still be seen in the majority of the country, but at this more pedestrian time. The Chiefs have slumped as of late, losing their last two, and quarterback Patrick Mahomes is losing his cool at the end of the last loss to the Bills is a prime suspect in this. 
They hit to Foxborough to face the Wobegon Pats, whose season was cheered with a primetime ambush of Steelers in Pittsburgh. The Pats' defense, even though they have been playing tough as of late, really scares no one and should be just a tonic for a Chiefs offense that has not looked sharp as late. The pick here is Kansas City. Next on the docket, we have the 10-3 49ers taking on 3-10 cards at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona, 4-05 kickoff on CBS. The 49ers are 12-point favorites. Last week, the 49ers defeated the Seahawks 28-16 while the Cardinals were on their bye. Fast fact here, the Niners have won 11 straight against NFC West opponents. Playoff implications here, the Niners can clinch the NFC West with a win. The Niners are liking their status of being the NFC bully. No one can figure out how to slow them down, much less beat them. They head to the desert to face a rested cards team that will need all the rest that they could get to handle this rowdy bunch. The last time that I picked a road team as a lock in the desert, which was the Cowboys against these same Cardinals, it came back to bite me. I don't see the Niners falling asleep at the switch here. The San Francisco 49ers are the Hoodwood Lock of the Week. Next on the docket, we have the 4-9 Commanders taking on the 6-7 Rams at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. 4-5 kickoff on CBS, the Rams are 6.5-point favorites. Last week, the Commanders were on their bye, while the Rams lost to the Ravens 37-31 in overtime. Fast fact here is Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford has thrown 10 TDs versus one interception in his last three games. Now, the Rams' offense has perked up as of late, though their special teams blew a tire in giving up a walk-off punt return touchdown to lose an exciting shootout with the Ravens. They head home to face a rudderless commander squad, and you can bet that Aaron Donald will completely relish the opportunity to hunt a slow-footed Sam Howell as opposed to the whirling dervish that he had to chase around on Lamar Jackson the previous week. The combination of a solid offensive output by the Rams and a weak offensive output of the Commanders against the withering Rams defense makes this an easy call. The pick here is Los Angeles. Next on the docket, we have the 10-3 Cowboys taking on the 7-6 Bills at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. 425 kickoff on Fox this is a nationally televised game. The Bills are two-point favorites. Last week, the Cowboys defeated the Eagles 33-13, while the Bills defeated the Chiefs 20-17. Fast fact here is Cowboys kicker Brandon Aubrey has made 30 straight field goals to start his career. That's an NFL record. Playoff implications is the Cowboys clinch a playoff berth with a win. Now the Pokes really feeling themselves after thrashing their despised divisional rival. They head to a much colder and much more hostile climbs as they face a Bills team that is starting to believe in themselves again and are coalescing at a frightening time for AFC opponents. Josh Allen is still way too reckless for my liking, but he's got the Bills offense moving better and a more efficient clip. He will face his biggest challenge in a Pokes defense that has been playing at a rather solid clip. As much as I want to say that the Pokes should walk over on this one, they're a different team on the road. 7-0 at home, 3-3 three three on the road. Bills Mafia makes the difference here, and the home team steals win. Buffalo is a hoodwood upset of the week. The Sunday night game is the 10-3 Ravens taking on the 8-5 Jaguars at Everbank Stadium in Jacksonville. 8-20 kickoff on NBC. The Ravens are 3.5-point favorites. Last week, the Ravens defeated the Rams 37-31 in overtime, while the Jaguars lost to the Browns 31-27. Fast fact here is the Ravens have notched a sack in 34 straight games, the NFL's longest active streak. 
Sneaky good game in the primetime slot here. The Ravens are coming in off of a wild walk-off win at home versus the Rams. And they could be very well playing, be playing for a playoff berth if games fall a certain way when they hit the field in Duval. When they face these suddenly slumping Jags who have lost a pair of tight ones to AFC North opponents. Lamar Jackson is playing out of his mind. Big surprise there. I still maintain that Trevor Lawrence and the Jags, despite their solid record at home, still have yet to prove that they are ready to stand with AFC Elite. And despite being at home, I can't see them doing that as the Ravens keep finding ways to win. The pick here is Baltimore. Finally, the Monday night game is a flex game. It'll be the 10-3 Eagles taking on the 6-7 Seahawks at Lumen Field in Seattle. 8-15 kickoff on ABC and ESPN. This game was flexed to Monday night, replacing the Chiefs-Patriots game. The Eagles are 3.5-point favorites. Last week, the Eagles lost to the Cowboys, 33-13, while the Seahawks lost to the 49ers, 28-16. Fast fact is this will be the first time that the NFL has flexed a Monday night game. Let's keep it a buck. You were glad that the NFL flexed to this game. Now, the Seahawks aren't the best opponent, but the Pats are train wreck. That is best not seen in prime time. <laughs> the Eagles are coming off of a pair of embarrassing losses, beatdowns at the hands of the, the Niners and the Cowboys, and they're needing a confidence boost. Another loss might put them in a real hole for playoff positioning, and while the Seahawks at home will present a challenge, the Eagles will get themselves right there. The pick here is Philadelphia. The Week 16 quick pick is the Saints versus the Rams at SoFi Stadium, Inglewood, California, 820 on Amazon Prime. Uh, quick pick here is going to be the Rams. There you have it. Last week they went 6-9, brother. Last week's Thursday lock and upset all incorrect. One overall 128-80, on locks. Five and nine on the upsets. Let's take our final timeout. Come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five, Fat Dap, Head Slap, and the final word from the Wood. Sports from the Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this. Hi everyone, I'm KJ Green. If you're looking to reach a broad audience, your advertising dollar looking no further than you are right. You advertise right here in the Hoodwood. If you need spots created as well, Black Banner Productions drive sales and gets results. You send your inquiries to ads at blackbandingproductions.com. Blackbanding Productions and Enterprise. Sounds, ideas, and images, 21st century. Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for no-nonsense commentary, insight, and opinions on the world of sports. Here now live in living color, black by popular demand, your host, KJ Green. Rounding third and headed for home here in the Hoodwood, let's finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five, Fat Dap, Head Slap, and the final word from the wood. Now, I was struggling to figure out what I was going to make a Hoodwood Hot Five this week, and then with Brandon Staley getting the gate in Los Angeles, let's look at the five most prime candidates to take over when the interim coach is swept aside and there's a new staff coming on in Los Angeles. 
The Chargers are a good team. They have lots of uh, experience on both sides of the ball. A good young quarterback in Justin Herbert. Good receivers. They've been bitten by the injury bug, but a good coach could return this team to its playoff ways. A number five candidate for the job is Vikings defensive coordinator Brian Flores. Now, Brian Flores does have head coaching experience. He coached the Dolphins for three years, uh, just uh, about two, three years ago. But it was a messy scandal in, in Miami of him getting fired. Now, he sued the NFL. And people wonder, can he ever get a head coaching job again? What he has done with the Vikings defense is nothing short of miraculous and has kept that team in the playoff hunt. I'm thinking he was auditioning for a head coaching job and he would be a fine candidate for the Chargers. Our number four candidate for the Chargers head coaching job, who I think it should be, is uh, Detroit Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson. Now, the Lions routed the Chargers in week 10. The offense ran for 177 yards in the first half. They had 533 yards and five touchdowns. Johnson would be just the kind of offensive mind to work with a great quarterback like Justin Herbert, great receivers like Keenan Allen, to spark, you see what I did there? Spark the Chargers' woeful offense. I think he would be a fine candidate for a head coaching job. He doesn't have any head coaching experience, but he could help this team's balance on run because the Chargers' run game sucks. Our number three candidate is kind of a wild card. Patriots coach Bill Belichick. Now, Belichick told reporters that he was focused on Kansas City. People was asking him about his job, candidate. We're focused on Kansas City. We're focused on. But everybody knows that the Patriots may be moving on from Belichick. His time in Boston is pretty much done. Now, would he want full control of because the, the, the uh, Tom Telasco, the Chargers general manager, was also fired. So Belichick, who is head coach and general manager, might be a good fit for that dual role. Belichick is getting up there in age. So do you think he might go off quietly in the sunset with the years he coached the Patriots or have try to have one last hurrah in, in uh, almost at San Diego, <laughs> in Los Angeles? I think he might be a good fit. Our number two in the Hudwood Hot Five of possible candidates is Cowboys coach, or former Cowboys coach, I should say, Jason Garrett. Now, he has ties to the Chargers. Offensive coordinator Kellen Moore used to be Garrett's offensive coordinator when he was in Dallas. You would think that kind of mind with that kind of quarterback and a young quarterback in Justin Herbert might be the kind of mix that could Make the Cowboys, almost the Cowboys, make the Chargers offense go a lot better. This may be a bit of a wild card. And I'm, I'm not sure if Garrett, who has a cushy job with NBC Sports, might want to roll on the sideline again. And the number one candidate, and you knew I was going to say it, and I know that, that Michigan don't want him me, me to even say it, Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh. Harbaugh has coached in the pros, coached in San Francisco. The love between Michigan and Jim Harbaugh is deep. But the love between the Big Ten and the NCAA and Jim Harbaugh ain't so deep. And I'm, you're thinking that Harbaugh might say, the hell with this noise, let me go back to the pros, build another team, and really 
dig myself in as a deep coaching candidate. He won in San Francisco. He's won everywhere he's been. I'm thinking that Jim Harbaugh might be the best candidate to take over in Los Angeles for 2024 going forward. That's my hot five. What's yours? Our Fat Dap and Head Slap of the Week, there's two Fat Daps going out. One going to Michigan coach Juwan Howard, who will be returning to the bench on Saturday against Eastern Michigan after a heart procedure that he had in September. He had, he had the uh, heart procedure to report or repair an aortic aneurysm and repair his aortic valve. That is some scary stuff, to say the very least. But... Uh, Howard has basically been ramping himself back up and will be back in the head coach's chair for the Michigan Wolverines. Also a fat dap is to Dick Vitale, the loquacious announcer who has reported that he is cancer-free. He was battling cancer. Believe it or not, cancer on his vocal cords. My goodness, can you imagine the strong, loud voice of Dick Vitale being silenced? Some people don't like Vic, Dick Vitale. Some think he's a little too crazy, a little too over the top. I think he is an ambassador of the game. He's a teacher. He's a coach. Very, very uh, um, prominent in cancer research. One of the founders of the V Foundation, which was founded 30-some-odd years ago. His uh, buddy Jim Valvano was prominent in that. He battled and lost the battle to cancer. We, it's good to see Dick Vitale. I'm hoping we'll hear his voice on ESPN broadcast soon. Our head slap of the week goes to Patrick Mahomes, whining, crying, badgering referees after a couple of controversial calls, which I detailed earlier in the show. Now, were there bad calls? Yes. Did he have a right to be upset? Yes. Did he have to drop F-bombs at refs after the game and not shake Josh Allen's hand and tell him you, you were effing lucky? No. Sportsmanship should be paramount. You lose, you win with grace, lose with dignity. Patrick Mahomes did not show that in the game against the Bills. Head slap to Patrick Mahomes, and also head slap to Patrick Mahomes for ruining my fantasy teams. Yeah, played like crap, buddy. Ran over. Now, without any much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. I take great pains to keep politics out of the hoodwood. Your political foibles are of no interest to me. I could care less who you voted for in any election. As long as you treat folks with respect and dignity, you're always welcome in the hoodwood, no matter what your political affiliations may be. That said, there's been growing noise in the sports world for the powers to be to intervene on the behalf of Florida State not making this year's college football playoff. Now, was the causes of one loss Alabama jumping over unbeaten Florida State suspect? Yes. But the CFP is a private entity, and they have the right to do things the way they want to do. The bleedings of Florida Senator Rick Scott and Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody are not needed here. The call for transparency in the selection committee and how they voted. Why is this needed? To bully 
browbeat and harass the selection committee into changing their votes? And what's it going to prove? You're not going to change who is playing in the CFP. There have been claims of the bias that ESPN wanted SEC team in the Final Four team, Final Four team CFP for its ratings, and that might have been the case, but it's the CFP's call to make. Florida State is the first Power Five team to go unbeaten yet be locked out of the CFP. When the University of Central Florida went unbeaten in 2017 but was locked out, did anybody go to bat for them? No. They were patted on the head and sent to a New Year's Six game Peach Bowl against Auburn, where they were expected to get their comeuppance. Instead, they defeated Auburn 31-27 and claimed a mythical national championship from the Kali Matrix. They were largely ignored by Alabama, who finished 12-1 and beat Georgia in the CFP championship a week after UFC's win. Then Florida Governor Rick Scott proclaimed UFC to be the, quote, real national champions and challenged Alabama to a game. His challenges went ignored, and uh, as the calls went unheeded, UFC's head coach, Scott Frost, left for his alma mater in Nebraska soon after. UFC faded back into relative football obscurity, though they were able to use that unbeaten season to move up to a power conference in the Big 12 on the strength of that achievement. But I digress. Florida State continues to whine and woo the sympathies of politicians who don't care about players. The only thing they care about is the money that is going to be generated with a CFP birth. With While the Attorney General and Senator need to do is get behind the lawsuits that are keeping players' mobility down. The transfer orders that have been put a temporary restraining order by the NCAA and the threats for their eligibility needed to be squashed and the attorney generals need to get behind that. The politics and the, the cartel that the NCAA is needs to be focused on. Not the games that the schools play but the politics behind the conference shakeups and how that affects the student athletes they so purport to care about. The CFP is expanding to 12 teams next year and in my opinion not admit too soon. Politicians need to stay out of the realm of who is who is playing and get into the reality of who is able to play. There is a huge difference. And that is the final word from the wood. With the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done. And I thank you so much again for your visit. The show's email is kjgreen at sportsmanhoodwood.com. Please send me emails regarding show topics, both past and future, questions, comments on the show, and both praise and criticism. I welcome your correspondence and will try to get back with you in a timely manner. The show's website is sportsmanhoodwood.com, which has a back catalog of the show dating back to 11 years in both audio and video forms. So you can check that out if there are shows that you may have missed. You can join the debate and conversation at the Sports from the Hoodwood page on Facebook. That also has video podcast simulcast, as well as other topics, funny stuff I find on the web, plenty of great sports debate, and lots more. I do post often and respond to member posts frequently. Now the video versions are also on YouTube. Please hit that subscribe and smash that like button for more great content. The link to the podcast is also on the show's tribal feed at Hoodwood Sports. A host of interesting stuff there. You can correspond with me and I respond frequently to member correspondence. Now the audio version is on Spotify. 
Amazon Music, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iTunes from Apple, and a host of other fine podcast platforms and providers. If the Hoodwood is not on your favorite, hey, ask for it. Drop me a line and I will see what I can do to get it there as quickly as possible. As always, special thanks to Rage Pictures for providing continuing production assistance to the show and website. So that's it from the Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Until next time, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green, 30. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production.